I've never been involved in the med tech industry until I got involved with Nemec. And over the past several months, I've had an insight into the regulatory environment around our med tech industry, whether it's drugs, digital therapeutics, or devices. And I've come to appreciate the thought process that goes into approving these. Our next guest, Tom Hutchinson, is going to give you an overview of what's called the EUA, an Emergency Use Authorization. Given everything that's going on with COVID-19, watching TV when we talk about ventilators, experimental drugs, this, that, and the other thing, you oftentimes wonder, who's watching out for my best interest as a consumer of these? Particularly when we're trying to find something really fast to solve a problem. Well, I hope you find this episode as interesting as I did. So let's hear from Tom and Danielle. I'm Danielle Sturm, your host of MedTech Monday. And today we're talking about as we continue working through a global health crisis of COVID-19, we have seen a lot of innovators scrambling to submit under the FDA's emergency use authorization guidelines, otherwise known as EUAs. So today we have a guest, Tom Hutchinson, come on, who is a regulatory and quality systems expert to talk about what EUAs are and how to submit under them and what happens after they are revoked. So Tom, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. Tom is one of our smart team members. Um, that means he is an advisor to NEMIC and an advisor to all the fellows we work with in the um, vertical of quality systems and regulatory management. He's taught classes. Um, he's worked one-on-one with our fellows and gave him great regulatory advice. And Tom, actually, one of our um, fellows, Resuscitech, who's also on this podcast before, was raving about you in their Rhode Island business competition pitch this morning and just your feedback and helping them strategize for um, submitting to the FDA. Well, that was very kind of them. Um, so I'd love to have you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and how, so that listeners can understand really what you've worked with and where your knowledge is coming from. Oh, certainly. Um, yeah. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Tom Hutchinson. And um, I've got a background in life sciences, um, an undergraduate degree in microbiology and molecular biology from The Ohio State University. Um, I've also got a master's in quality management uh, from the National Graduate School. And I've got about 35 years um, in quality and regulatory experience, both in academic medical settings as well as in industry. Uh, in industry in large and small companies, um, in in vitro diagnostics company called Hygia Sciences, which is a monoclonal antibody company with the very first pregnancy test kit. Uh, The blue stick uh, dipstick uh, was actually developed up in Newton, Mass. I was part of that original organization. And uh, since then, I'd worked at a rather large firm, uh, Beckton Dickinson, medical device company, pretty well known for both patient care as well as diagnostics. I was head of quality regulatory for, on a worldwide basis for their medical products business um, for about nine years. Um, and then I went and did some international quality regulatory consulting and uh, was uh, taken up by uh, an offer from Pharmacia Corporation in New Jersey to be a global director of GMP compliance. So I moved from devices over into big pharma, specifically around GMP compliance, um, had, had some things to clearing about four warning letters that we had in Pharmacia at the time from the various companies that had gone in there. Then uh, Pfizer came along and bought us, and I stayed on with Pfizer for about another five years, um, more on terms of regulatory submissions and the post-approval change management, 
um, and also really a big focus on drug device combination products, primarily around drug delivery technologies. Following leaving Pfizer in 2006, I came to Rhode Island uh, as the head of quality and uh, first at quality affairs um, at um, Dayball, a unit of CR Bard Corporation. About a year and a half in, took over regulatory and clinical as well. And uh, over time, over almost uh, over almost 12 years there, um, ended up as uh, vice president of global regulatory affairs for Dayball. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, CR Bard and Dayball have have uh, since been um, acquired by Becton Dickinson. So it's kind of a small world gone round robin. But uh, I've worked in technologies and surgical implants. I've worked in diagnostics. Um, I've worked, obviously, in pharmaceuticals quite a bit. Um, everything from uh, initial technology assessments to licensing um, to uh, large-scale manufacturing um, kinds of operational responsibilities for quality assurance and quality control. Um, and most recently, since having left Dave All in 2017, um, started my own consulting work and have been focused very much in terms of startups and entrepreneurial kinds of activities, such as the kind of work that's going on at NEMIC. Awesome. So um, recently, since the EUA was put out by the FDA, there's been um, a lot of feedback and a lot of questions coming to NEMIC. And the most common misconception that we're seeing is a lot of people are thinking that EUAs are a lowering a lowering of standards by the FDA when they're not. Um, so I'd love to ask you to really tell us what an EUA is and how can we use it? Sure. It is kind of an arcane area. Um, it's not an area that a lot of regulatory professionals tend to get involved in a lot um, in the, the typical medical device area. Although the folks in the in vitro diagnostic space tend to know it fairly well, mainly because of the use of EUAs, certainly over the last 10 or 15 years, um, with a number of uh, different kinds of health issues. Um, the whole basis of an EUA, basically, is to allow the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services to designate um, the sale, uh, the commercial distribution, of all kinds of technologies and such that will um, basically get people away from the potential liabilities and legal responsibilities uh, that are associated with the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. The Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938 um, is the main bulwark, the main foundation for, again, all food, drug, and cosmetic regulation and legislation going forward in the United States. And it arose because of a public health issue that happened back in the late 30s where people um, were putting out a cough syrup for children and they were using um, diethylene glycol as a sweetener to cover the bitter tasting um, active ingredients that were in there. Well, several hundred children died because of that. Um, there was a huge public outcry. Diethylene glycol is what is used in antifreeze and it's highly, highly hepatotoxic. It, it'll wipe out your liver. So that was kind of the response. Um, 1976, the medical device amendments expanded um, a lot of the responsibilities of manufacturers and others um, from just the pure foods, drugs, and cosmetics into medical devices as well. Um, that was also a response to a public health issue with the Dalcon Shield, um, anti-pregnancy device to be inserted into the uterus, which actually led to ectopic pregnancies, pelvic inflammatory disease, and another major health issue. But what happens that a lot of people don't understand with the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, this is, it's, it spawns a lot of regulation, but it also happens to be a criminal statute. It is not just a civil statute. So as a civil statute, you can pay fines and you can you know, agree that you're not going to have something happen. With a criminal statute, 
a company cannot be used as a way to shield individuals in the company from potentially going to jail. So people who are in a position of responsibility or in positions where they should know better because of their level of responsibility um, can be prosecuted um, and actually sent to federal prison as well as being fined for um, things that they do, which are outside the approval uh, of the Food and Drug and Cosmetic Act. So in times like this, um, when we're having problems uh, of a public health issue um, and people want to jump on the wagon and do a lot of things, sometimes you need to move pretty quickly. Um, and so we need a way to get around the personal and, and organizational liabilities and criminal liabilities of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. So to understand a bit better, um, we know that like this global health crisis um, of coronavirus has spurred an EUA to be implemented. Um, what other in the past, what other global health crises or what other things have spurred EUAs um, to be put into um, sorry, to be implemented um, by the FDA? Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, there's a whole process um, that's called uh, medical countermeasures. MCM is the, uh, is the acronym that's used. And uh, FDA actually has an Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats. And they have something within them called MCM small i, which is Medical Countermeasures Initiatives. Um, and what they do is, so there's this office, which is actually set up ready for these kinds of problems to emerge. Um, what happens with an EUA um, is that um, it's a response to some kind of an issue which has been identified either by the Sec Secretary of Health and Human Services, the Department of Defense, or even the Department of Homeland Security. And any one of those three uh, secretaries can raise an issue that's of interest and potential harm to the United States, the people of this country, for chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear threats, or emerging infectious diseases. So when you're talking about EUAs, you'll see this uh, CBRN and EID acronym quite a lot in terms of what's going on. Um, and so what happens is um, once there is one of those issues which is identified um, by one of those secretaries, then they can go ahead and petition and designate specifically the particular use of implementing uh, um, the um, emergency youth author authorization process. Um, another thing to note here is that the EUA process, uh, although we're talking here specifically about devices, does not necessarily only apply just to products and devices. It certainly applies to drugs. Uh, it applies to diagnostic tests, and a diagnostic test really are a subset of um, medical devices, but highly specialized, but can also apply to special instructions. EUAs can be issued for um, prescription um, changes. So, for example, if there's a medicine that needs to be handed out quickly and you can't wait for a doctor's prescription, or it needs to be handed out outside a pharmacy, EUAs can be issued to authorize that. Um, EUAs can be authored in the needs of um, stockpile equipment or stockpile drugs to extend um, shelf life and expiration dating. Um, so they're used for a number of different mechanisms to respond to some kind of a public health crisis from either the CBRN or EID kind of a circumstance. 
Um, yeah, no, I was just going to note that I was reading the um, EUA guidelines for digital therapeutics um, right before we got on to record this episode. Um, so it's interesting to see the different guidelines for different types of devices or drugs or anything in really the biomedical space. Um, Right. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, the fact that there are existing guidelines for a number of these technologies already. Mm -hmm. So what type of devices qualify under the EUA and what do not right now? Well, it's interesting. Um, so under the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act, of this is in the specific section which talks about EUAs is Section 564, um, which was actually created in 2004 and was added as part of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, um, and has been updated since 2013, 2016, and 2017 as a response to a number of other kinds of public health issues that have arisen. Um, the, the way it applies, speaking specifically for devices, is either for, um, it can be for an existing product, which is already either cleared or approved for use on the market, but you want to have a new specific claim as a response to whatever the new challenge or threat is. It can be uh, an existing product where you want to make a design change, uh, and but it's still going to be used with the same claims, but you need to get that design change out there quickly. A good example of that is ventilator splitters. If you've got a ventilator and you need to put two or three people on it because you don't have enough ventilators, your original product was was approved for the use of on only a single patient, and you're going to do some design change. Um, you're not going to change anything else on it, or maybe you're going to put some other sensors and make some software sensing changes or things like that. But that's already an approved product that's on the marketplace. Or it can be for completely new products, um, which have never been used, uh, placed on the market before, um, or might be coming from a completely different field, and now you want to use them in a medical application. So there's a, there's a broad um, spectrum of kinds of technologies uh, that can potentially apply for an EUA. What are those regulatory requirements um, under an EUA and the process for applying? Okay, um, that's one of the challenging things. Again, there are guidance documents and templates. Uh, they cover devices, in vitro diagnostics, they cover drugs. Right now they're around masks and personal protective equipment, um, sterilization technologies and such. Um, and they've been pretty much tailored, um, some of them revised rather recently because of the current situation, other ones that have been around for a while. Um, and they basically walk you through the kinds of things that you need to do. The technologies are all very, very different. So depending on what they are and what the classification level, the risk classification level was originally, uh, if it was a class two or a class three, class two FDA products require the 510K process, class three uh, products are called PMA or pre-market approval products, and they're the ones which most often need clinical trial data and things like that. Um, so what they're trying to do with the EUA process is basically come to a risk-benefit determination in terms of is it safe under the current circumstances to allow this product which has been submitted, either with a new claim for this particular um, therapeutic clinical area or for uh, coming in with a completely new claim or a completely new technology, what's the risks associated with allowing that to go out in the way the company's asking it to go out um, versus the benefit uh, under the current circumstances? That's kind of a high level. Um, and probably the biggest issue there is in, especially with class three products, where there's a clinical trial data which is required to really uh, prove the safety and effectiveness of the product. 
you don't have time for that. You don't have time for clinical trials. So you have to take a look at providing other data so FDA can take a look at that. Again, using the guidance documents about the kind of information that a uh, submitter or a sponsor can use to help build that case that under the circumstances with all of this information um, and everything we've done, we may not have a full formal clinical trial that FDA signed off on with all those controls, but based on this aggregate data, we our, contin- our, 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 our contention is that the risks certainly, uh, the benefits out, outweigh the risks associated with, uh, with going forward. Mm-hmm. Do you have a like example of what that data is since you can't do clinical trials, like what people would submit? Well, um, there are uh, a number of components, uh, high level, and then I'm going to be able, and then I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull up a specific one, which is a kind of an interesting one to, uh, to take a look at. Um, so the general things which go into an EUA uh, process is a, a description of the product, the device. What are the high-level labeling indications for use? Uh, what's the intended use? Um, what are the specific claims that you're making associated with this? Of course, in the current situation, why or how do you want to use this product specifically for helping with the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, what are what are the labels? Are you going to have? Are you going to have um, you know directions for use, instructions for use, fact sheets for healthcare professionals, um, and also they're going to want a description of um, how you're going to get that information out to people. People are going to use it, um, and each one of the guidance documents and their templates that are associated with these guidance documents too that you can you can go to FDA and they'll send them back to you very quickly. Um, they give you an outline, if you will, of the kinds of things that need to be in that information. So, for example, if it's a product, a ventilator, and you're going to say, uh, maybe your labeling says, can only be used um, basically on an RX prescription of a doctor. You know, many times in a clinical setting, the nurses say, I'd like to make this change, but a doctor's got to order it. In other words, that means it has to be changed only by prescription. Or the ventilator change, uh, something, a setting needs to be changed that can only be done on an RX because that's the way it was actually originally approved. Doctors are running around all over the place. You got somebody with an ICU, they got to make that change themselves, take on that responsibility. You can't wait for a doctor. You need to have sent them specific, probably fact sheets about using that situation. Here's what you do if you can't find a doctor and you're basically temporarily under the EUA allowed to go ahead and do that. So those fact sheets are really kind of important, especially with the more um, direct patient contacting kind of support equipment. Um, the other thing they want to know is they want to know what's the current approval status. What's the, approval, the, the current market authorization status for the product that you're submitting? If it's either one that's already on the, on the market and you're looking for a change in the indication, or if it's um, something that's completely new. They want to understand um, from your perspective, what's the demonstration of need? And one of the things that's important in the EUA is whether or not the FDA believes that there are already acceptable market authorized alternatives in the market. So you can't just pile on. You can't just say, I want to put this out there. If the FDA believes there's a diagnostic test, for example, that's widely enough used, or there's a ventilator technology and enough ventilators out there that are used, or there are enough PPEs out there and everybody's got them, they can deny you. They say like, nope, you haven't proven the need. We think there's enough out there to take care of the need for for going forward. Um, The big piece in terms of the submission is the safety and efficacy. What information have you got? Literal literature searches, either your own clinical data, case studies from journal articles, perhaps clinical trial data you've been able to obtain from outside the United States, depending on what those results have been. 
Then after that, data and that information, the really big one, the risk-benefit analysis. Um, you know, what's your risk mitigation? How are you going to keep track of it? How are you going to know whether or not it's working the way you expect it? You need to give them some manufacturing information. Where are you going to make it? What kind of controls are in place? Is it made in a factory that's already got registered with FDA? Maybe not registered with FDA and it's doing export only. Um, and it's got ISO 13485 sort of quality system certification, say for CE marking or Canada or Australian. People only want to export. You know, FDA wants to know what kind of systems or is there no quality system that's actually registered or certified in that facility? Because that's a possibility as well. Then they want to know um, how much product have you got on hand? And also, what are your capabilities? Can you scale up? So they don't want to spend time going through a review for a small shop that can maybe make, you know, five or 10 things a month when what's really needed is 10 to 50,000 things a month, whatever the mm -hmm. items are. So they want to see that. Um if it's a situation where you just want to extend an uh, expiration date, you'd have to show some stability stuff. And uh, th that's kind of the, the, the major, major outlines um, that they're looking for. To get into one specific one, so I pulled up, there's a ventilator emergency use authorization, and there's something called an interactive review memo. One of the things I want to mention is when you start going into this process, there are actual people assigned uh, within the review division, uh, Office of Device Evaluation at the Centers for Dive Dise uh, Devices and Radiological Health, CDRH, at FDA. And they are specifically assigned to deal with these coming in. They've got a central mailbox. Uh, it's actually CDRH-COVID-19-ventilators at FDA.HHS.gov. And you can communicate with them back and forth. Um, and what they do is they send you this interactive review memo, memo and you fill it out. So it is a template. It is about 10 pages long. Um, and it talks about, again, why are you, why are you submitting this? Who are you? Uh, what's the name of the product? Is it already cleared in the U.S.? Do you have authorization to sell this in other countries around the world? Um, what's the unmet need? Um, and actually, for the ventilator one, it's already pre-filled in because it's already been determined by FDA that there's an unmet need for ventilators. Um, there's a section on product labeling. So they want to see what you want to say about it. Um, you want to talk about the standards. Has it been designed, evaluated, and validated in, corporate, in accordance with the applicable FDA-recognized standards? And there's an appendix. And that's the really technical point that I want to get to in this whole process. I mentioned earlier about a quality system, other quality management standards. They want to know, again, this is for the ventilators, what kind of power supply? Is it AC? Is it 110? Is it 220? What is it? Authorized labeling. They want to see that uh, the, the labeling is going to be, plus any fact sheets or things like that, fact sheets for healthcare providers. They've actually got another hyperlink within this template which you can go to and you can see what kind of suggested language they want to have. Um, there's a thing in terms of authorization, how you would deal this. Um, and then there's a whole another section in terms of ventilators, specific guidance documents and international standards. They want you to declare conformity for the, um, for the ventilators. There's standards IEC 60601 for medical e electrical equipment. And there's a whole bunch of performance standards and sections in there. Um, there is um, IEC 62304 for medical device software that's going to control it. There is um, there's an AMI standard. Uh, it's American Associated Medical Instrumentation, uh, TIR 69, 
uh, risk management for uh, radio frequency interference with other equipment. There's an ANSI spec. There are ISO specs, 10993, for bio, a biological evaluation of medical devices for patient contacting. So there's biocompatibility testing. So this is what I mean. It goes through really significantly. There's a separate standard, ISO 18562, for biocompatibility evaluation of breathing gas pathways. And it goes over particulate matter, volatile organic compounds, leachables and condensate. Um, there's a number of, there must be about 30 different standards here that they would want you to go ahead and talk about whether or not you assess those, what kind of data you have around those and those kinds of things. Then they want, you know, some technical specifications work. Um, and for ventilator accessories, so example, if you're just working a current a ventilator, but now you want to put some kind of split tubing or something like that, um, then they want you to talk about specifically what it is that you're doing there and, and how those would deal with different kinds of companies' ventilators because they're all slightly different and designed differently. They t ask you to talk about reprocessing and how long is the stuff good for, what kind of facility requirements are necessary to use these ventilators, um, the conditions for use, engineering and manufacturing spec sheets. I mean, it's really not that different from a regular PMA or 510K submission. This is all the kinds of stuff that you would normally have to do. Um, there are a couple of things in terms of... Uh, they want to be very sure in terms of labeling when you go through an EUA for any product, even if it is a class three product. With a class three product PMA, since the FDA has approved it in the United States, you can use the word approved by FDA and also you can use safe and effective because you provided clinical data and there's been a conclusion made that they could be called safety and effective, safe and effective. You can't say that under an EUA because they haven't looked at all the clinical data. They, they say it's, it seems to be reasonably effective or reasonably safe. And they tell you there's a lot of restrictions in terms of how you can advertise this and how you can promote the product as well. So what are the testing requirements and how does that differ um, for people submitting under an EUA? Well, like I said, um, I just went through that whole listing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, I'll go back. I'll go to the ISO 10993, which most people know from a biocompatibility perspective, right? So again, whenever you've got a product that is touching or in contact with the human body, whether it's on a dermal surface or it's mucosal membrane or it's a dermal surface, but you've got a cut, so there's access to sublying tissue, underlying tissues or, or blood or circulatory system, or if it's going to be an implant. So the kind of contact and the amount of time and the tissue that's in touch with all dictate what you have to do from a biocompatibility testing perspective. The longer something has to be in the body or the kinds of tissues, like if it has direct blood tissue, you have to go beyond just um, whether it's cytotoxic or causes irritation or inflammation or possibly could impact the, the hemocompatibility for blood cells or things like that. If it's a permanent implant, you've got to go all the way down to um, teratogenicity or genotoxicity can affect, uh, can things leach out that might affect your genes or might, you know, poison an organ after four or five years in you. So what happens is, so for say for a ventilator, and maybe you've got some kind of new tubing that you want to use for the intubation. Well, if it's going to be more than 30 days, you're going to have had to have done the biocompatibility testing consistent with any other medical product that would be going into a person's body in touch with a, those, those organs 24 hours a day for more than 30 days. And that's a, that's a rather, rather large number of, of tests that need to be done. So how should entrepreneurs modify their quality management systems um, for devices 
used during COVID-19? Um, that's an interesting question because, um, of course, you know, entrepreneurs, depending on where they are in the spectrum of their development and their thinking, you know, if they're early concept or things like that, there are many pieces of a, quote, formal quality system, unquote, that they may or may not have, you know, been that aware of, or maybe they're aware of, but they haven't really started to practice them. Um, and again, a lot of this uh, is suspended from the normal GMP requirements or the kinds of things that you would normally have to provide in a 510K. So for example, if you're in a class two FDA device world and you want to submit a 510K, one of the things that FDA looks for is a design failure mode effects analysis, DFMEA. It's part of an overall risk analysis plan. It's a particular tool to drill down what are the potential prescriptive uh, risks that might happen with the use of the product, um, and what are you going to do to either design around them or to fix them. Um, that's a very rigorous process to go through. usually involves you know, design engineers and quality engineers and regulatory people and clinical oversight, maybe marketing people, to get together and think those things all through. Um, but FDA under EUAs, they're not necessarily looking for the full 50 to 150 page DFMEA completely done because that could take you months and months and months to rigorously go through that. However, if you could summarize again the overall risks associated with the product and the design from what you know already, um, that would be part of the risk benefit analysis. So they're looking for the thinking process more than they are the actual tools and the reports. So a lot of that product development and design control work that in a formal system with procedures and forms and everything like that, that entrepreneurs, they say, start to dig down and work toward a formal project and a formal product and move forward toward market authorization. You have to start living within those boundaries. You need to be cognizant of those, um, but you would not necessarily have to, um, uh, at the first blush, when you start the interactive review, uh, have that in there. If you had some high level of that, maybe it's not quite as rigorous, but you've picked out the initial risks. And there are a lot of those kinds of tools that are available just out on the internet. You can do a general search and find the tools. If you started to assess that kind of matrix and you put that in to the interactive piece that goes at FDA, they'll take a look at that and give you guidance right away as to whether or not you need to do more or whether that's enough. Mm -hmm. And under this really accelerated um, push to market under the EUA, do the requirements change for for handling complaints or tracking and tracing um, these devices that get onto the market? There are a couple of things that are part of, if you will, a full GMP, a good manufacturing practice um, quality system that um, are still required. Although I just mentioned some things that they're really not looking for. And actually, depending on the product and the risk benefit analysis, the manufacturing controls, FDA is authorized actually they don't even have to necessarily have a GMP inspection or the product does not necessarily even have to be in an ISO 1345 international quality system certification place. They can be manufacturing place or place of use. Um, but the one thing, the, the couple of things that they really are concerned about that are part of the quality system, you need to have a process to manage complaints and report adverse events to FDA. That's a real key thing. Um, now, they're not saying that you have to have, you know, huge documented and signed off by all kinds of people and document controls. They say you need to have a process. Um, and how that is, it could be adverse reporting in a hospital uh, or a, uh, a clinic or something like that in a neighborhood uh, or, um, you know, in, in an area that doesn't have a lot of formal systems. 
but they want they want to know have a description of how you think you're going to get the complaints how you're going to assess them <clears throat> and they want you they, they want to know that you know how to replay uh report an adverse event uh into fda through the uh, medical device reporting system they want to know how you're going to do that the other thing they need you to, to, to tell them is how are you going to track um where you've sent the product they want to know what distributors they've gone to or what uh, customers what hospitals if it's something that you're selling through the internet after you get an EUA, um, you need to keep track of all that. Because again, two reasons. If for some reason under the EUA, something has been uh, authorized and there are signals coming back that there are problems with it, either the fact sheet has to be changed or there's a problem with the design, they want to be able to come back to you and say, hey, get out to all those people and let them know about this issue. They'd be publicizing too, but they would, would want that tracing. Um, and, um, and the other thing is there is a requirement that all these records in terms of the complaints that you receive, how you handle them, um, all your tracking and tracing where you sent the product and things like that. Um, you need to keep uh, records of that too, because FDA, they reserve the right to be able to come since in the sponsor's information, you've given them a physical office location where they can come knock on a door. Um, mm -hmm. if they need to see those records, they can access those. But everything else is pretty much open. EUAs are temporary. What happens when an EUA is ended? And what does that mean for the technology that's on the market and entrepreneurs that are running those businesses that got cleared? Well, it's very interesting. Um, there, As I mentioned earlier, uh, the EUAs, once you've gone through the process and submitted all the information and the Secretary of Health and Human Services and probably has designated the responsibility, I think I think most of the EUAs I'm seeing right now are signed by the chief scientist at the FDA, um, not the FDA commissioner, which is interesting. Um, they, um, they're supposed to give you a heads up that there's going to be a change, that they're going to be pulling this. So you can start getting your ducks in a row. Maybe you got to go get people. Oh, by the way, any remaining product that you've got um, has to be destroyed if it's new, or it has to be relabeled when, once the EUA is pulled. And then it's a little gray as to what the level of responsibility is to going out and letting people know that they can no longer, that they should, you know, possibly do it. Um, I've not really seen much in terms of recall. People seem to know, even the healthcare institutions using these know when the EUA, they, they get, they get notified as well. Um, and they, they tend to, you know, go back to the manufacturer, whoever sold it to them, say like, you're going to take this back or I throw this away, things like that. So the word tends to get out pretty quickly. Um, an interesting thing, though, people talk about cancellation of EUAs. There are EUAs that were issued in 2005 that are still current. Um, there were three that were issued in 2005 for anthrax, um, and they're all still current. Uh, a couple of them for tests, and one of them was actually, uh, it's interesting, it allows, um, it's mainly for the Postal Service with the anthrax scare and the concerns about uh, anthrax spores being sent through the mail. And apparently somewhere in the Postal Service, there is authorization for, I don't know, it's managers, supervisors, OSHA managers, I'm not sure who, but they've got stocks of doxycycline antibiotic in case someone comes in contact with what something they might think is, um, is contaminated with bacillus anthrax, anthrax spores. So they can get prophylactic medicine right there from with where, where they work. They don't have to go to the doctor. They don't have to go to a pharmacy. That one's still there. That's from 2005. Um, there was in um, between 2009 and 2010, there were 20 through, 22 EUAs for the H1N1 pandemic, right? Um, three for antivirals, uh, 18 for diagnostic tests, and one actually for N95 masks. 
Um, those have all been terminated. Um, there for the H7NA influenza flu, which was 2013, 2014, there were three EUAs issued for testing. Those ones are still open. And that's six years ago. Um, for MERS in 2013, 2014, there were two for, again, an in vitro test, a PCR assay, similar to what's being done since that's also a type of coronavirus. They're still open. People are still making those tests and selling those out there. They never went through a 510K process to formally get them approved through, through, um, through FDA. Um, Ebola, 2014 to 2016, there were 12 EUAs issued for test kits. They're all still open for the different manufacturers. They can still sell those, those, uh, those, those kits. Um, 2017, um, atropine auto injector was approved. Um, Zika virus from 2016 to 2017, over 20 test kits were approved and are still current for Zika. I checked the FDA website today because they list all of the things as well as listing them in the federal register when these things actually get an EUA. As of today, there are 51 EUAs for in vitro diagnostics for COVID-19. There are seven for personal protective equipment, and a number of those are in sterilizing the mass. Uh, there was an article I read today in the Providence Journal around uh, Battelle Research out in Columbus, Ohio, developed a methodology for um, sterilizing, re-sterilizing um, uh, N95 masks. And they've got eight of these sterilizer placed in high volume areas around the country already. So that's one that they did. <laughs> um, and there are 23 EUAs giving authorization for clinical testing to laboratories, laboratories, hospitals, um, university laboratories that normally aren't uh, part of the clinical lab testing, like a LabQuest or Quest or some of those other big companies. But that's how they got authority to even do some of these diagnostic tests. So, And there are 12 that have been issued for ventilators. So that just gives you an idea of the scope of what's going on right now for COVID-19. But again, mm -hmm. depending on how long the health uh, issue is considered to be uh, relevant and extant, um, those EUAs can be left out there for a fairly long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I'm hearing and bringing this back to the entrepreneur, and a, a lot of people have been contacting us and just I've seen that because this EUA went out, they're kind of scrambling to say, oh, can I can I get a device? Can I sell a device on the market through this? But I think it's good to think about if you don't have those resources right now, and if you can't get it there, it's not good to put all your eggs in one basket to try to get a device onto market under the EUA, because once it ends, that's really the end of that um, device if it's not cleared for the market normally. It's not a mechanism that I would recommend as a means to test out a design idea. Mm -hmm. It's not a rapid path to market. Mm -hmm. um, the only way it might be a rapid test uh, path to market would be to um, find a currently operating company that is working in the similar space and possibly have them work with you to move that idea forward. They, they could be absolutely thrilled to see the technology idea and, and see it as a, a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I know you mentioned that the, the leftover really product that they have to destroy. Is that the same for like devices being recalled from hospitals or being recalled from the field? Um, yes, it all depends on what they are. So again, if you had sent ventilators out with some kind of new programming around um, or patient monitors or things like that, and you're going to take them back um, or possibly, and they're already approved products, it's just they've got this new claim. Or again, you've put some other software in there. 
you could you could uh, address them. It could either be a field change where you could send the updated software to take that particular operating condition or algorithm out that you got the EUA to put in in the first place. Um, or again, if it's never received market authorization, either a 510K clearance or a um, class three PMA approval from FDA, um, they come back and you, you, you can't sell them. I guess you could keep them. There's an expectation though that, um, that you would uh, potentially destroy them. Mm-hmm. And you, you just shared a lot, a lot of information. So I just want to ask to really summarize it by saying, what is really the biggest differences between submitting under an EUA and submitting regularly, like paraphrased? The biggest difference is, is first of all, um, it's an extremely dynamic process. Um, You're getting expedited review, which in terms of people trying to bring products or ideas to the market is great. Um, And the burden of proof in terms of potentially having to generate a a large amount of clinical trials um, data is removed. Um, uh, And also the quality systems kinds of things that might necessarily need to be in place, um, you don't need to have made that particular investment as well. So again, it's a means of getting these technologies on the market um, in a manner which has got um, greater benefit than risk. Um, And the judgment of the Secretary of Health and Human Services is that, you know, on balance, uh, it's better to have this stuff out there than than not. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I have one last question. How can a company get their device authorized without the risk of receiving a, a warning letter later? And what is that warning letter warning them of? Well, that's interesting. There are, um, I've heard one statistic recently uh, from a couple of days ago um, on a, uh, one of the regulatory blogs that I follow. Um, and the person made the statement that there have been almost as many warning letters issued by FDA as there have been those, you know, 50, 60, some EUAs so far as COVID-19. And those are primarily out there for people who are, um, you know, selling quack products or selling strange, um, strange claims um, for breathing apparatus, if we're thinking about, you know, the device area, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of a lot of reporting in terms of, of strange things being sold to supposedly either prevent or, or help people through this. Um, when you get a warning letter, that's the first stage. Basically, that's the FDA saying, stop doing this. Um, and again, remember, because of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, if it's serious enough, they'll have U.S. Marshals come knock on your door and they'll put handcuffs on you and you're heading off to a cell. I mean, they can do that. They can arrest you. Federal agents can take you away. And you can be charged with a federal crime and go to prison. So the best way to do that is to uh, not put things out there, not make claims uh, for technologies that haven't gone through some kind of review, the EUA process, let alone the regular market authorization process. Um, and, and if for some reason, you know, you're in the interactive process and you still want to get out there and you still haven't received that EUA, um, you still want to, you don't want to go there. You can negotiate back and forth with more data if you're trying to convince FDA that a particular test isn't really relevant for what you're presenting to them. Um, but you really need to, to go through that process to avoid uh, potential um, uh, enforcement action. So, Tom, um, if anyone listening today is interested in contacting you, what's the best way to do so other than 
coming to Nemec because through Nemec you can work with Tom very easily. Um, sure. If anybody wanted to reach out, my email is t Hutchinson Q R E at cox.net. So that's T H U T C H I N S O N Q R E at cox.net. Awesome. Thank you very much. And if you're interested in um, contacting us about anything we talked about in this episode, um, you can tweet us or reach us on social media at Nemec Center or just hashtag MedTech Monday. Thanks for listening.